Yes, I've known Don D for, I suppose, most of his 15 years that he's been in the fellowship. Uh, he gives a terrific lead. Tonight is his anniversary. Would you help me uh, welcome Don D. My name is Don, and I am an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic who no longer drinks, and that's why I qualify to be your speaker tonight. There are a lot of alcoholics out there tonight who are drinking. Some of them know they have the problem and they're doing nothing about it or don't have the courage to do something about it, like many of us here at one time or that way. And there are some who don't even have the slightest inkling that they have a problem. So many of them get it mixed up with saying, yes, so I have a drinking problem, so I won't drink until next Thursday and my problem goes away. And they don't realize that it isn't really a drinking problem as much as it is a living problem. And that's why I'm here. I have completed 14 years in the program, and I'm starting my 15th year. And if you're brand new here, you probably are saying, well, didn't you catch on yet? <laughs> I did, yes. I think after my first 90 days, I understood what the drinking problem was and the compulsion to drink. And that more or less came out to me through listening to lots of people speak and to going to discussion meetings. And it became a habit not to drink. Just as it is a habit to drink, it can be a habit not to drink. And so that's what I learned, I think, in the first 90 days, maybe the first year, the first two years. And then it dawned on me as I went to all these discussion meetings as people were talking, that they no longer were talking about their last drink, but they were talking about their rage, their resentments. My father did this, my mother did that, my wife did this, and I'm listening, and they're all talking about problems of living. I was one of those kind of people that wasn't in touch with it. I am also a child of an alcoholic, so a lot of it's suppressed in me. And it was at these meeting halls that as I heard things more discussed, then I began to think, well, do I feel those things too? And then I started to understand that I had lots of anger that was never really expressed and that I had lots of fears. And then I became more curious to read more about this in the big book, and people were always discussing it. It seemed like all the smart ones were able to quote something from the big book. And then we want to go and look up what they were talking about and find it out. And from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, through the years sifting it down and things that I've heard <coughs> from people, and my own opinions, it seems like the big book in essence is saying that we are a group of people who did not mature properly. We're very self-centered. It is the root of our problem. And our problem lies in three areas, in how we handle resentments, fear, and sex. Those three items are why we are here, all of us here tonight. So all of us here tonight have to question where we are in resentments, fear, and sex. And the book then goes on further and tells us then how we go about helping ourselves out of this quagmire, out of this problems. And that's what the 12 steps are based on. And then it tells us if we do these 12 steps before we're halfway through, then we get the promises, 11 promises, but we alcoholics always like everything in 12, so we call it 12 promises, but anyhow, it's promises. And basically, of all those promises, the most important one to me is that it tells me that I will instinctively or I'll intuitively know how to handle situations that before used to baffle me. And I got that from it. And then finally, 
it tells me if you did all of that, then how will you know when you are well? How do you know the well ones when you see them? Because we all kind of look alike. The well ones carry an aura, uh, carry an aura about them, and that aura indicates that they are needed, wanted, loved, and respected. And the last one is the hardest of all to get. Many of us are needed. Lots of us are wanted for many different reasons. But not all of us are respected. And that's where the answer comes in. So, so much for my opening statement. And I promised that I would be very serious because there are three fellows here who said, every time we come over to your house and you talk with us, you're always real serious. And the last time you were up at Oak Street, you sounded like David Letterman with a stand-up comedy routine. So anyhow, also it tells us in the big book that we should be joyous, happy, and free. And that's the way we eventually get. I'm sure there's some people here, maybe this is their very first AA meeting. Or their first month here. But even if you've been here many, many years, we can never stop the wonderment, or as you young people say, it's awesome, how this program was put together. Was put together. There was a wonderful man that many times, and there's some here, I see Ed and I see Bill over here, people who were here many years, Remember, we had a wonderful man named Al Calipi. We can use his full name. He's dead and gone, and he was a wonderful man, but his thoughts go on. And he used to get up and say, you know, the very first time I came to AA, they explained the whole program to me. It was right there. The recovery was the first night. But I had to come back. 27 years to understand what they said that first night. And it's true. We learn by repetition. Anyhow, he broke it down. And he used to do beginner's classes upstairs, and he used to say, this gravel voice he had. I was a pipe fitter, and I have no education of now, but all I know is I came here and I never drank again. But I'll tell you what they do. This is what they do. And then he said, all these people get together in a meeting room like this. And he said, somebody gets up and is a chairman and says, my name is so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Now that identifies that person labels themselves and shows that they belong. And then that person says, we are a group of people of Alcoholics Anonymous who gathered together to share our experience, our strength, and our hope with each other and that we are a group of people that don't belong to any sect, you know, that means Italian, Catholics, or blacks, or anything. We're just, a, we don't belong to any sect. We don't belong to any denomination. We don't belong to any organization, Masons, Lions, or whatever. We could belong to them, but that isn't the requirement for being here. The only requirement for being here is a desire to stop drinking desire to stop drinking, not even stop drinking. There are some people who come up here who still drink, as you probably have met them on occasion. So the desire is all that's required. So he says, we explain that. And we state right in the very first few minutes of the program, the very first few minutes of the, of the meeting, what the recovery is. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Class is dismissed, you could all go home, that's it. So then he said, then they go further and this chairman comes up and then he says, uh, well, we're going to read the 12 steps. And the 12 steps, they read off. And what are those 12 steps? First of all, it starts off with we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Remember, we, not I. See, we were all eyes. Eyes is very self-centered. We all got sick individually, but we all get well together. We all got sick through crying. We all get well through laughing. Do you ever notice how much laughter you hear up here? So we admitted we were powerless 
over alcohol or drugs or whatever you want to call it, and that it made our lives unmanageable. Many of us didn't know what an unmanageable life was. Some of them it's pretty obvious. If you're here and you get your slip signed at the end, obviously some judge or probation officer is managing your life. If you're here because the courts send you here, if you're here because your family feels you belong here, something about your life has been unmanageable in order to force you to be here. So that's what the first step was about. And it tells us that we've got to start doing these A's. First, we've got to admit that we've got the problem. Then we have to accept it. But then the important one is the third A. We've got to adjust adjust our whole lifestyle to the fact of this problem we have and as a result of that we end up appreciating the whole thing that's when we start to laugh we start appreciating why we're here so that to me is is what the first steps about I'm making it general and then Al used to say well then if you admit that you have this problem with alcohol and uh, it's making your life a wreck then you better uh, start explaining to us why it is such a wreck. Can you tell us some of the insanities that you have done to see if you really belong? And then people start saying, yeah, I did this, and I took my Harley Davidson all over this, and I went 80 miles an hour this way, and I hit so-and-so. And some of the insanities you hear here are almost, well, you couldn't, if you wrote books uh, on it, people wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe they're credible stories. You know, the stories we tell within here, Earth people outside are shocked. Uh, we have to have open meetings so that we are prepared for the reason why we have closed meetings and open meetings is so that we can, under closed meetings, say the kind of things we'll say and laugh about them. Some Earth people get offended. They come and we say, and I fell down backwards, went over this way, hit my mother-in-law in the face, and rolled down the street, the police grabbed me, and took me away, and everybody roars with laughter. <laughs> and my sister's an earth person. She's been to such a meeting. She goes, oh, my, did you hear what that man said? Why, that's terrible. <laughs> and those people are so cruel. Listen to how they all laugh at that man. Oh, those people. Oh, I didn't know they were that sick. They all laughed at what that <laughs> You know, they're just, they're just different than we are. But anyhow, we start doing these insanities. That's really what step two is. We got, we're preparing ourselves to get well. So if we admit we got a problem, we better start stressing what they are in step two. And then step three says we, we, we have to make a decision, and that's very hard for all alcoholics. I don't know about you, but it was for me terribly difficult. I still have problems. We go out to dinner. Where will we go? And if we get there, what will we eat? What should we tip? Why did we come here? Where should we go to Oak Street or Russell Street? There's always this decision, you see? And some of us are lesser than others. Some of us turn decisions over to everybody else and just let them live our life for us. And that's, we got to be careful of that. But it says we made a decision to turn our willingness our willingness to learn this lifestyle, our willingness to, to open up, that's what the third step is. Made a decision to turn our willingness and our lifestyle over to the care of God as we understand him in AA. And we understand God in AA differently than anybody else. We have a marvelous freedom given to us. You know, the, the organized religion have it all set pattern for them. They say, this is how you worship God, and this is how you should believe. And these are the books that tell you so, and if you don't do it that way, then you might be excommunicated, you might be told to leave, you're a sinner, and you don't belong. Well, we're the people that have spent so much time not feeling that we belong, so that's why so many of us had trouble with God as they understand him. And that's what Bill Wilson gave us, that wonderful line, God as we understand him. And it was later on that Bob Smith said, Bill, you keep talking about God all the time, and don't you know you're going to turn some of these people off? We've all had trouble with religion. He said, I'm talking about God as we understand him. And so Bill, Bob says, and what do you mean, God, as we understand him? He says, I mean, we're a group of people. We get here and we get our lives together. 
to get it going in a good orderly direction. Spells G-O-D. Has nothing to do with what's hanging on walls or or anything else. And that term started and it's been going on for a long time. Every once in a while you hear it. I don't know what God is, but I know when my life's in good orderly direction. I don't know when God touches me, but I know when he's not touching me. I know when I'm filled with anxiety and I'm filled with indecision. I feel, oh boy, God's not with me then. But when I'm sitting back and kind of in a trance and say, wow, this is the best high I've ever had and I haven't taken anything yet. And I guess that's serenity. I don't know. So anyhow, the third step definitely means something about turning, turning over, turning over to some higher power. So if we've done that three, then the fourth says, well, then you better take an inventory of, of who you are. If you tend to stay around here, you better find out what's wrong with you. And it says you better find out in a very definite manner. Don't be vague about it. You've got to be very definitely be searching and fearless. Fearless means you're about as scared of what you're going to find out. Be it the worst, you might as well know it. Searching, really look into all the nook and crannies. Be fearless and searching in this attitude. You know the word moral. The religious people have picked it up and they use it and have, somehow it's associated with morals. You have good morals, you have bad morals. We don't have any good or bad people in AA. We have either sick ones or well ones. Some are sicker than others, you've heard that. Some are weller than others, but we don't have any good or bad people. I mean, really don't. The word moral, as it tells in the dictionary, means attitude. The word attitude. A moral is an attitude. So we take a fearless and searching inventory of our attitudes in the fourth step. So in the fifth step is where we really start to get humble now, and one of the hardest things of all to do is to sit down and tell somebody else your hang-ups. Boy, that's a hard thing to do. But it's terribly essential to do. Because when you do, it releases it from you. It's a humble thing to do. And it opens you up so that you can talk more with other people on an honest, one-to-one -one basis. Because I think most all of us talk a lot, but don't really say anything because we don't want to express our feelings because maybe then you won't like me or you'll know how goofy I really am or whatever we think. And that's why we men get into, I'll help you change your oil, you help me change my oil. What do you think they're playing today or what do you think about what Jimmy the Greek said? Or, see, we get into all kinds of things we're having troubles with feelings. And girls do the same thing too, and I think they're far advanced of us. They really are. The girls have done a lot better than the men have had. We just in this last last 50 years of our liberation are starting to really, uh, really think and feel and cry and wear pink shirts. <laughs> but anyhow, so... That's why we do the fifth step, to help clean the house, to create some humility, and to make us able to communicate better. And then if so, we found out a lot about ourselves, and six tells us what our character defects are. If we got character defects, we've got to start working on them. Seven says our shortcomings, those things that are short in coming to us. Shortcomings can quite often be things you don't even know you've got wrong with you. But if you come to enough meetings, you will find out because, you see, other people are taking your inventory, too. And they tell you. So if you've got some shortcomings, you'll hear about them. If you've got bad breath, somebody eventually is going to say, hey, you got bad breath. If you got B.O., they say, hey, you got B.O. If you talk too much, they say, hey, you know, you talk too much. You get your feelings hurt, you see it. If you say, you know what I mean, you know what I mean, you know what I mean, and we, yeah, somebody will tell you, you know what I mean, stop it. I'm trying to get my shit together, I sit here, the shit, I go, God, did you know you're obscene? 
And suddenly you say, I didn't know all that stuff. Well, when you say that, you say, I didn't know my shortcomings. That's why I humbly have to ask him to help me remove my shortcomings. Well, humbly indicates an act with God to be humble. So therefore, I'm pleading with God. I know what my character defects are, and I've been a hell of a time working on those. But humbly, I ask you, somebody, tell me what's wrong with me. And that's what comes through to seven. Seven is when God starts speaking through all these people. And he speaks through so many of them sometimes. And that's when we start getting our feelings hurt. Oh, my. Be there a person in this room, if you're a real alcoholic and you don't get your feet, your feelings hurt easily, I wonder if you're the real thing. The real thing there. Ooh, sensitive. We have to learn to develop this armor here. You know, or we come in here like with raw skin, and everybody either says something to <laughs> raw skin. Until after a while, you know, we learn to desensitize each other. We do that. At, that's why we go to these discussion groups. You know, you sit there and somebody says so and so, and the other one says, "Oh, get out of here! What kind of crazy talk is that? If you raise your voice, go to the meetings and stop drinking, you wouldn't have that problem." See, they really come out and tell us. They tell us you're too sensitive. They tell us the same thing earth people have been telling us. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're looking for crises. And that's what we are doing. We keep looking for crises because we don't want to look within, so we look without. Create crises. Helps fill our time. It gets rid of this terrible boredom. Boredom of life. God, we've been bored since we've been four years old. Was bored with that red truck I got when I was four years old. Bored with my friends in the first grade. Bored with the activities in high school. Bored with the people I worked with in school. I never got my imagination fired until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I really... I had no idea there were people like you who were like me until I got here. What an incredible journey this whole thing has been. Cell 7, 8 says, make a list of all the persons we owe amends to, and that does not always mean apologies. Oh, everybody says, well, I don't know how to amend him. I never did. It's what he did to me. My father did that to me. I didn't do anything to him. Well, you know, you don't owe apologies to socks either when you mend them. Mending means putting back together, putting relationships on a basis that is tolerable and understandable to all of us. So if you've got a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or an aunt or a friend that you are deliberately staying away from, you don't owe an apology to them, but God damn it, they did that. Somewhere along the line, it tells us may put them on the list and when the time comes in number nine it says we should make amends we should somehow create the situation better so that we can walk in any room out of it without this feeling oh suppose so-and-so's there or oh my god see that's what the ninth is to make us feel all of these are leading up to make us feel more serene and we can't become serene until we know ourselves for good or for bad whatever it is and if it turns out to be horrible what you find out about yourself at least you know you got something to work on and you know you will have to stay 14 years See? but anyhow so then we do that. Number nine, by the way, and I hear it every time I go to meetings, they always say, may direct amends whenever possible. It's not whenever, it's wherever. It means you really have to go somewhere. You have to literally go to the ends of wherever you got to go to. Wherever, not whenever. Whenever indicates that whatever is possible, whenever you get around to it, it's wherever. Nine, ten says then you're doing so great. Well, then just keep tabs on it, keeps maintenance, you know. Like Mike's card back there keeps breaking down all the time. He waits until it gets in terrible shape and it breaks down. 
Now he's figured it out, you know. When it starts acting this way, I'll take an inventory on it now, that daily maintenance, and it will finally stick together. That's all it is. Number 10 is to keep the status quo. And number 11 is where we get spiritual. How do we get spiritual? Well, every time we say our prayers in the morning and say our prayers at night, we're practicing step 11, aren't we? Because we're seeking through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him and asking only for his will for us and the power to carry that out. Boy, all the things we're asking for, his will, we're asking for power. But that's what we're doing, the 11th step, when we, when we do that, when we say our prayers in the morning, we say our prayers at night. You know, I look at these, these Muslims carrying on in Lebanon and everybody shooting each other and so forth, and like a lot of religions, they get rather fanatical, like the Christians do, and apparently the Israelis do too. Everybody gets fanatical in their religions. But the word Islam, I didn't know that till last week. Islam means surrender. The word Islam means surrender to God. And you know, they, the, uh, the, the according to the Muslim religion, they have to say their prayers eight times a day. And they look to the east because that's where the higher power is supposed to be in Jerusalem, in the east. And they have to do it eight times a day. And that is because they feel that they can only be spiritually fit for a matter of two or three hours. And then you start getting their insane thoughts and start everything else until they pray again. Eight times. Maybe we should do it 12 times. I don't know. <laughs> anyhow, eight times. In other words, they, they are recognized the fact that it doesn't take just a prayer in the morning or a prayer at the night, but some prayers in between. And of course, we're in a modern civilization, so where can we do this praying in between? We can do it in the automobile. If we can turn the radio off long enough, it's awfully hard to pray over a sting. You know, you have to turn things off. That's something else I learned in this program, too, is to be able to get in an automobile and turn and not have it on. In other words, before my ignition, when my ignition went on, the radio went on. On instant escape. Everything about my life was instant escape. Radio, boom! And now it's a wonderful, I just turn the ignition on, and I uh, am able to think. And that's a wonderful time for me. Sometimes I talk in my car. Some people have seen me talk in my car. Policemen have seen me talking in my car. But that's all right. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm trying to get a conscious contact with God as I understand him, and I surely don't have it all the time. I only have it occasionally. And what I'm saying tonight, I am talking a wonderful program. If only God, I could live as well as I could talk. I'm a much better speaker than I am a liver. I sure am. But anyhow, I'm just trying to share with you information that's come down through me. A lot of it I can do and some of it I can't do. I'm not Mr. Perfect. Oh, I've heard that recently. Somebody thought, well, he never makes a mistake. He's never wrong. Well, I must put on an awfully good front, because I certainly do. Very human, I hope. So we get up to the 11th step. Every time you come to a meeting, you're practicing part of the 11th step, aren't you? Because it opens up with a prayer. And we talk about God. We're all trying to get better conscious contact with God. So we're doing the 11th step probably more than outside of the first step, probably more than the others. And then we get to number 12. The 12th step says what? As a result of working the other 11 steps, we develop a spiritual awakening, a spiritual awareness. We suddenly become aware of, hey, I think I know what's wrong with me. I think I'm reliving part of all that stuff my old man used to say to me. I'm loaded with this negative attitude. I've been carrying it a long time, but that's, that's the way my mother and father lived, and I never knew the difference. They never knew any difference. My father was a drunk, and, and I, I didn't know the difference. How do I suddenly know that? Somebody crossed the room in that discussion with a brand new person said, da 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 da. Somebody sat there, I'm always getting uptight about something, and some damn fool said, well, I don't know, I'd rather be right 
I'd rather be happy than right. I'd rather be happy than right. That gives me the freedom that I don't have to argue out every point. That's a spiritual awakening. You hear all those kind of spiritual awakenings. You know, I was thinking about that today. I heard somebody say one time, the first thing you do is get well, then you get good. Some of us come in the program, we immediately get good. Oh, let me hold that chair for you. <laughs> let me carry your big book for you. <laughs> Become very good. See? Let me get your call. Let me, let me, let me. Very good. They're very gracious. See? But we first got to get well, then we can get good. Then it's nice to get good. Well, the thing is, people-pleasing. People get it mixed up. People-pleasing and being pleasant to people. You know, if you're people-pleasing, you're looking for approval because you don't feel much of yourself. But if you're pleasant to people, you belong. That's what it is. A lot of people who are sharp and caustic to other people and say, oh, he's an old-timer. He just tells us all out. He's still looking for attention. That's all we do that for. We get smart I like with you people because we can get, to get attention. I'd rather be happy than right. I feel like throwing me like what that fellow on television does. Here's what I heard too one night. Quinces. We all talk about quinces as an AA, you know? I was on my way here and away there, and I don't know, I met so-and-so, and we ended up at a meeting and never drank again. What a coincidence that is. So-and-so met so-and-so. Some of us met each other. Different people come into our lives, you know? I think about Ed sitting here. Ed and I came on the program maybe a month or so apart. He met a series of people in AA, his own friends, and he's never drank since. I met a different series of people, yet we are contemporaries. We were at the same beginner's class. We both knew Al Calipi. They put the two of us together at the beginning to go and share meetings at the old Roman psychiatric clinic. I remember the first time we went there. We went in to give these people the message of hope. And the man locked the damn door behind us, didn't he? <laughs> I said, Ed, what is that? He said, well, this thing, the bars, they lock it. Well, come back and pick us up in an hour from then. <laughs> but see, he met certain people, I met certain people, and we branched this different way, and we see each other at meetings now and then. But we both got sober, so the right people came into our life. Coincidence. It's God's way of dropping his anonymity. I like this. Dropping his anonymity. There was an old man at East 3. East 3 was a great big group at one time. Years ago, it was the thing to do. You know, it's like what, what this, uh, what's it called, spiritual fallout is today. I mean, everybody's the elegant thing to do or something. That's where the message is. That's the message. So anyhow, in those days it was at East 3, it was the fashionable thing to do. And there was a man who'd get up and they'd be as many leads and he'd say, Well, I had a good wake this week, and I know it was a good week because I just remembered that nobody can make me mad enough, bad enough, glad enough, or sad enough to take a drink today. Thank you, and he'd sit down. His name was Woody, and he's dead now. But maybe some of you remember him. I bet you do, Bill. Remember him. Nobody can make me mad enough, bad enough, glad enough, or sad enough to take a drink today. That's really what makes us drink. It's going to be the mad or something bad or sad or we're too glad. Very simple thing. And this one's terribly important. My serenity, this is from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My serenity is dependent inversely as to what my expectations are of other people. In other words, if I expect a lot from you, I'm bound to be disappointed and my serenity goes down. And if I don't expect much from you, then my serenity stays here like a teeter-totter. It'll go like this and suddenly I get to I'm expecting too much from you and then my serenity goes down. Some other things that I learned through the years, and I, I talk about this quite often, and uh, People in Denver have this, and there's a great big clock on the wall. I mean, some of you heard me tell this before. A big clock on the wall like this, and it's got the hands on it. 
but it's not telling time. And you look at this clock between six and nine, it says building a crisis. <laughs> between nine and twelve, having a crisis. Between twelve and three, recovering from a crisis. Between three and six, boredom. <laughs> The chairman's going to have a discussion. He says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's take, first of all, before we see what we should discuss today, how many are here between six and three? How many are in the room building a crisis? And they dutifully raise their hand. All right. That's about most of them. What about how many here are recovering from a crisis? How many are in the middle of a crisis? How many are bored? <laughs> you can even look around the room and see it, and that's every AA meeting every day. Same damn thing. And if you're not on that cycle, then maybe you belong in the Kiwanis or something. Because we specialize in that. We just constantly, I can only talk for myself, I should not be talking for you, but I've talked to so many of you, I'm sure that my research is proper. And that is that I have for years, I would say the first 10 years, I hope they give me that kind of hope, but I say the first 10 years I was constantly building a crisis, having the crisis, and actually get tired of the crisis, get sick and tired of it. That's my form of recovery. And then I get bored. Now what their theory out there is, that section that's called boredom, is really something called serenity. You turn it inside out. You know, we know that there's a very fine line between depression and anger. Anger's out. Depression is anger inside. Boredom and serenity. Think about that. Very close. The difference is that when you're bored, you nothing's happening and you don't like it. <laughs> when you're serene, nothing's happening, and you do like it. <laughs> That's simple. I'm telling you, it took me 10 years to catch on to that. <laughs> Anyhow, that was kind of interesting to me. And they explained, and the chairman afterwards, and I went back several times, and in those days I was doing business in Denver, and we had an international AA conference in Denver, 1974, I think it was. Dottie was there, and several of us attended it. And I'll never forget that man talking about where are you and they say raise your hand and I don't know why we, it would be interesting for us to do sometimes just like how many here are building a crisis raise your hand nobody will own up to it there we are there we go how many are having the crisis now there we are there's a few few honest ones here how many just recently recovered from a crisis How many are bored to death? Another thing that I learned was this, and I, I, I thought this was kind of fun too. And listen to this, and I, I did this at a beginner's class many years ago, and I still teach the, the beginner's class on Tuesday nights, the fifth Tuesday, around maybe five Tuesdays there are in a, in a, uh, in a year, I think it's four or five times a year. In, uh, in AA. And that is this. If I would say to you that if you stop eating string beans, I could promise you that your anxiety level would reduce itself tremendously. Your thinking would get much better. You probably would get either a raise or get a job or improve your lot. If you stop eating string beans, believe it or not, you'll get rid of that car with all the rusted fenders 
that you have to keep jump cabling every night. <laughs> if I told you you ate string beans, you'd never go to jail again. And if I told you if you quit eating string beans, you would stop having strange memory lapses, you would say to me, that's a bargain. Hell, I'll give up string beans with those kind of promises. And why is it when you say something to people about if you do that with alcohol, there comes in this justification, this rationalization, this blah, 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 which proves that it is a disease of denial. I don't think there's anyone in this room who kept a can of string beans in their glove compartment. <laughs> How many of you here ever kept string beans up in the closet? How many of you ever said, I'll come over and see you Friday night, providing you got plenty of string beans? How many of you ever said, I never go to George's house because he's real square, he never serves string beans? Who's ever heard of anybody being arrested at 3 o'clock in the morning in front of the IGA for eating too many string beans? What judge has ever sent you to String Bean Anonymous and get this, get this signed? Bring back signatures. You gotta attend 10 sessions there. So well, you, God, you've got a string bean problem. It's so funny how we can laugh at our stuff, but that's what it is. And when you've been sober enough and your mind gets clear of all that, you look at it from time and say, that's so true. <laughs> What's nice about the story, you can always change it from string beans to cauliflower or whatever you want. Just like you could change it from beer to wine to whatever it is. Well, I wanted to get some of these facts out. And I tell you, I am an alcoholic. And always today, meetings, you must qualify yourself. And you notice I haven't. So far, I've just given a big expertise, my master's thesis on what I think it's all about. But I am the real thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be around here for 14 years if I weren't the real thing. Nobody walks in by mistake. If they do, they don't wait 14 years later and say, I thought this was a Mason's meeting. <laughs> these are the things that I learned in these halls, and back to good old Al. Al would say, so then, the chairman does that. Then the chairman says, anybody here for the first time, we don't embarrass you, just want you to raise your hand so we can get to know you. The purpose of that is so we can find out who the new ones are, so we can help them and carry the message to them because we know how they feel when they come in. Like, what's this all about? Who are all these people? If you're a brand new person, you walked in here tonight, I was sitting saying to my friend Dottie tonight, we were getting stepped over and people were spilling things on us, and I said, my God, this is like a stand-up cocktail party, isn't it? <laughs> you can take the booze out of our hands over so behavior is just the same, isn't it? So anyhow, so he asks about, and then they ask, the chairman usually says, well, is there anybody here who's having an AA anniversary? And the newcomers look around, what does that mean? That means how long it's been since the person had the last drink. Somebody gets up and says, 30 days, 12 days, 96 days. Somebody says, a year, and everybody says, my God, he's an old timer, you see? <laughs> and then some of these others, when you've got lots of years, then they think, well, I know for the first time I thought somebody said I was an old timer, and they said Alzheimer. The <laughs> rhyme, you know. But anyhow, so they ask that, and the purpose of telling what the anniversaries are is to prove to the other new people that it works, because that's what they're trying to say when they come in. So if I quit drinking, how long do I stay quit drinking? And then when they hear these people rattle off these numbers, then they say it must work. There's so many of them there. And they all seem to be laughing and being happy. And so they figure it works. It's our way of advertising ourselves. And then the chairman usually reads something from the bulletin that says, this is going on, and if you think that your life's going to be dull once you come into AA, it's nothing but that. 
we have more social activities than Earth People's Anonymous has. <laughs> we got bowling leagues, baseball leagues, we got a Thanksgiving dance, we got something else, we got the gratitude breakfast, we got all kinds of, we got more events. And we got the kind of events that are so elegant, we could have it in the most elegant place in the world, and you can still show up with your jeans and the knees torn out. <laughs> and nobody will judge you. It's the most incredible fellowship you could ever belong to in your life. And so if you have walked in here, if you got here by mistake, if you got here by a judge, if you got here just by your own admission, you've been touched. You have been touched. And there's a lot of people out there tonight that are not touched. And if you don't believe me, drive by some of these bars and look at them sitting there and see them coming out. See the conversations in front of the place and listen to the conversations. It's dull. It's like one of the last things that Bill Wilson said when he had his deep voice. He was losing, he had emphysema. And they said, what can you say about Bill, the program, and what you think about it? He said, well, all I know is that all that I thought was wasn't that which I thought wasn't, really was. Meaning that so many of our values when we come in, we think are something, and we find out they're not. From the big book, chapter 7, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss, and I've had that experience. People that know me know I have a host of friends. They, they know that I have a group of people growing up about me, a family. We know you won't want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other becomes the brightest spot of our whole life. Incredible thing. I just want to read this last thing and I'll stop. I don't care too much anymore about personal fame or glory. I want only enough money to enable me to do the work I feel I can do perhaps best. I stood off when I took a long look at life and the values that I found in it. I seemed to see a paradox that he who loses his life does indeed find it. That the more you give, the more you get. The less you think of yourself, the more of a person you become. In AA we can begin again no matter how late it may be, even people my age. Because I have begun again. At 62, I have had come true for me the old wish, if only I could live my life over knowing what I know now, and I am living my life over. My brother said recently to me, why, you're getting into your second childhood. And I said, thank God, because the first one was lousy. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I am living again, knowing what I know now. I hope I've been able to impart to you, dear reader, this is from Bill Wilson, at least a little bit of what I know. If not me, some speaker will. Will tell you of the joy of living, the irresistible power of divine love, and the healing strength that comes through AA, and the fact that we, as human beings, have the knowledge now to choose between good and evil, and we're forced to choose the good, and thus become happy. I never did become happy in AA, because I 
never knew what it was. But I became content, fairly content. My life is fairly content. I've learned how to turn off crises before they get too big. I've learned how to stretch the boredom a little bit longer and interpret it as serenity. I've learned how to cope with life as it is. I try to look at life the way it really is, and not pick up and run away from it. Deal with it. Those are some of the things I've learned, and this is rather a, an emotional night for me. It was 14 years ago. I was in Emerson North Hospital before they had care units, just in the mental institution. I felt like going back there today, running down the aisle and say, look, I'm well at last. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't do that. I just thought I would come up and uh, share some of the feelings that I have on this particular night. I told you I was an alcoholic. I was the real thing. I was a lonely little child who was a spoiled brat. I grew up to be the teenager who was six foot tall and weighed 115 pounds with a thousand pimples. Awkward, bad in sports, bad in all those things. I had a, a parents who did the best they could, a mother who was very ridiculing, a father who was indifferent, worked all the time. I hold nothing against them today, but they did all that they knew how to do it. I lived through all that. And somehow I survived it all at the age of 47 years old. God, how late that was. I found this program. And so what I thought was the most dismal day of my life 14 years ago turned out to be a celebration this night. If anybody had told me then, I'm back 14 years from this night, and I'd like to hear what you got to say. <laughs> Old Al Calvin, you'll say what I mean. After 14 years, you'll find out what we're saying this first night. And that's true. And everything I've said to you tonight, everything I said to you tonight was said the first time I came here. And it took years to really digest it all. And what fun it was doing it. Keep coming back. Hang in there, because this is a story that does have a happy ending if you allow it to be. You're the master of your faith. Thank you for sharing this wonderful night with me. Thank you. Thank you.